Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast. Today I'm speaking to Keith Mason QC, who is a former president of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales. He is also a former Solicitor General for New South Wales and has served as Chairman of the New South Wales Electoral Commission and he is currently a visiting professorial fellow at the University of New South Wales. So welcome to Afternoon Light, Keith. Thank you for having me. And Keith, we've got you on the Afternoon Light podcast today because we wanted to talk to you about something historical and something contemporary. The historical thing being the Egon Kish case, which was a, a extremely high profile in its time in the 1930s immigration law case. But then, of course, the contemporary issue was the Novak Djokovic case that came before the federal court in January just one short month ago. It seems it seems so long ago now, but it was only it? <laughs> it was less than a month ago. But, yeah. but Keith, you've you've written on the Egon Kish case, and I'm sure you have your views on the the Novak Djokovic case and decision. But tell me about the Egon Kish case of 1934. Well, actually, there, there were several cases. Uh, Kish was a a communist, a Jew. He suffered under Hitler. Uh, he was invited to come out and speak at the end of 1934, at a series of rallies by the peace movement. These were designed to be counter-rallies to uh, the celebration of of the centenary of Melbourne at which the the Duke of Gloucester was coming out. Uh, At the start of the rallies, the, the Melbourne ones greatly outnumbered the Kish rallies, but at the end of the time, thanks in part to the inability to get, get Kish quickly and quietly out of the country, there were bigger crowds at Kish's gigs than at, than at, at, the, uh, at the conservative ones. Menzies was, of course, very involved on the conservative side of things, and this all happened just about the time he, he moved from Attorney General for Victoria to get the seat of Kuyong catapulted into federal parliament in the new Lyons government and was was made attorney general in that government. And Menzies, as attorney general, took up the, the legal fight involving Kish with spectacular f- series of failures, <laughs> yes. usually, usually at the hand of Evert, who in the 1930s outclassed him. Of course, we all know Menzies got his comeback yes, in, the uh, 50s. in, in later times. <laughs> yes. But in the 1930s, uh, that, that set definitely went to Ebert. So th- there were a series of Kish cases. He was invited out. And before he arrived, the Minister for the Interior, I think his name was Patterson, 
but on the d- direction of the the Lyons government, decided that he should be kept out of the country and barred from entry. Uh, and so there were a series of attempts to use powers under the Immigration Act to bar him from entry on the basis that he, he was an uns- unsuitable person to, to be in Australia at the time. So the the first case occurred just as, as he arrived in Perth by ship intending to get a train across to, to Melbourne. But uh, a, a notice was served on the ship's captain, a man named Carter, which he was obliged to respect if it was valid. And so Carter refused to let Kish get off the ship. And the ship then sailed around to Melbourne, by which time legal proceedings started to get underway. The first Kish case was before the Chief Justice of Victoria, an attempt to get habeas corpus, and that failed on the ground that Kish was an alien, which is a clearly invalid reason to refuse habeas corpus, but but there it was. Mm. The second case, which came in the High Court before Justice Evatt, who was heard it as a single judge, sought to have declared invalid the the notice from the minister reciting that he thought Kish was an undesirable person to enter. Right. And it had to use, there was power to do this. It had to use a particular formula, which included, uh, I've been informed by the British government that such and such and such and such, and I formed the view that he should not be allowed to enter. But when the, when the case came before Justice Evatt, the government wasn't prepared because it didn't really have proper evidence to show that it had received a notification from the British government that Kish was persona non grata. So in a, a technical but very proper ruling, the notice barring him was declared invalid. In the meantime... Just after he'd been refused habeas corpus in Victoria, Kish literally jumped ship. <laughs> and, uh, this is when and, it really um, descends into high fast, this, this saga, yes, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in doing so, he broke his leg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he wrote a book about it later, which he called Australian Landfall. <laughs> and... And it was full of sporting puns, which he said that, that Australia is a sporting nation. They will appreciate what I did. <laughs> so he fell. The police picked him up. Uh, he said, look, I've arrived in Australia. You must take me before a court. Yeah. The police said no way, and they bundled him back on board the ship, <laughs> which sailed around which sailed around to Sydney. With so, his broken so, leg. <laughs> With his broken leg. And the proceedings, in fact, the proceedings that I mentioned a little bit earlier on took place uh, in Sydney. Uh, In the meantime, Everett granted Kish bail and he started to, uh, so unlike Mr Djokovic, he was able to go at at liberty and he he went to a huge anti-war rally in the Sydney domain yeah. and was able to carry on with a broken uh, while leg. The, while, 
with a broken leg, waving at his crutches, <laughs> uh, doing it while while the, the the case was argued. Right. So having 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 won his first case, the the government and by this stage, Menzies was Attorney General, and he was in effect call, calling the shots. The government then decided to invoke the the dictation test, which was part of the white Australian policy. I think, though, it would be worth reflecting on why the Lions government was so worried about Egon Kish. I mean, you said that they um, that, that they weren't able to produce any evidence of advice from the British government about why he was considered undesirable, but he was he was a communist um, and a communist activist. He'd been he'd been jailed in in Germany. There were concerns yeah. in Australia about communists and communist activities, but was it just because he was a communist activist, or was there? He had been banned from entering Britain. I understand. So it's That's sort of correct, it's yeah. curious that the Australian government hadn't received anything that they could at least produce in the High Court in terms of advice from the British government about their concerns and why the British government, for example, had banned Kish from entering Britain? Well, the British Secret Service wasn't prepared to share its intel right. with, yeah. the, with the Australian people. I think that's, that's the, the, the factual reason. Why was it an issue? Look, like many of these things, we, we look back on them and say that it was a culture war, but things were in a huge transition. Mm. In the 1930s, the international workers of the world, communism, what people had genuine fears uh, about the spread of communism. We all know that it had never really thrived in, in Australia, that its main job was to keep the Menzies government... <laughs> Elected through the 1960s, but but as as a as a force, it, it did have some success in the unions. But there was genuine fear in the 1930s about it. Mm. There was also, uh, I think, in the shall I say the Melbourne establishment, but certainly the establishment, there was only a, a very belated realization of how terrible things were in Germany. Yes, and that. Part of Kish's message was to say, look, th- this is happening already. Yes. Um, I've been imprisoned. Uh, it, 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 it will happen. But people, because they feared communism more than they feared rising fascism, um, th- th- there just wasn't a, a recognition. Um, and so these were two, two worldviews, one on the rise and one perhaps on, on the on the decline, but both sides of Australian politics took polarised positions. And, and it's also re- worth reflecting too that Kish was not just a communist, he was a Jew, so he would have experienced yes. in Germany yeah. um, pretty significant discrimination um, because, of, because of that identity and race as well. Yes. Um, Keith, so the dictation test, this is... Uh, I mean, this is where the Kish case gets him even... I mean, you think the broken leg's enough, but it even descends into um, more <laughs> high farce with the dictation test put to very good use. Yeah. But tell me, before we before we unpack the details of that part of the story, which, I mean, it, every time I hear it, I can't, can't help but chuckle, 
how did the dictation test come to come to be in Australia? It's a, as you said, part of the White Australia policy. It was a, a tool used to preserve White Australia. But how did it come yeah. to be? Yeah. Well, if we think that 20th century and 21st century politics can be racist, it's nothing compared to the 19th century. Yeah. And the attempts that were made by Sir Henry Parks to keep Chinese immigrants out, there were court cases then, uh, it, it was nakedly racist. In 1897, the government of Natal in South Africa came up with this dictation test. And they, and they did it under guidance of the, the, British, the British government. Most Many people said, look, let's just be honest. We, we don't want Chinese or Indians coming because we are racist or, as Sir Alfred Deacon put it, it's not their bad qualities we fear, it's their good qualities. <laughs> they work so hard and they're taking jobs. From, they make us look bad. <laughs> yeah, but... Everybody, including the, the debates, if you read the debates in 1901 in the federal parliament, they were nakedly racist. All mm. of the people were just saying, we've got it, we're going to keep these Chinese out. The question was how to do it. The British government had lent on the government in Natal and said, look, we have interests in Asia, like India, and we don't want to upset the Japanese people. Can't we do it? with a bit of a fig leaf in an indirect way. Mm. So they came up with this dictation test, which was used in New South Wales before it was used federally, uh, and it, it was a, a legal fiction. But you, you were to be administered a test of 50 words in any European language. So the European was the way they got the white Australia bit in. So it was any European language. Uh, it would be put to you and you, you would write it down and if you, if you understood, you, you passed. If you failed, you were deemed to be a prohibited immigrant. An incredible parliamentary fiction, but that's that's how it, how it worked. So if you were if Italian been... and you did the dictation test and they, they spoke to you, they said you need to um, take dictation in Greek... <laughs> and you didn't speak Greek, despite speaking Italian or European language, you were stuffed, <laughs> basically. Yes, but, but, but Kish in the 1930s was the first European to be given the test. It was always used on Asians. Right, right. Uh, and and they, they would be taken off to the nearest Greek restaurant where the owner of the restaurant would <laughs> dictate something in Greek and the poor... Chinese man who'd been found in the outback of Australia wandering around would, would fail. <laughs> and he so would be arrested. <laughs> he'd be arrested and, and would be thrown out unless he unless he took the matter to court. And even if he did, he would fail. It, so the irony was that he was Kish. He was European to the bootstraps. Yeah. He, he was fluent in about eight languages. Uh, so they said, well, let, let's give him the, the uh, dictation test. And so they chose... Scottish Gaelic. Mm. Yes, they thought and, uh, he'd probably not quite have mastered that one, <laughs> despite the eight others he'd mastered. So a young policeman was brought in 
he wasn't very familiar with Scottish Gaelic either. <laughs> I think he'd only heard his father speak it. So he he administered. He said, "I'm going to give you the test in Gaelic." Kish just laughed and said, "You know, I'm not going to do it." And so he was he was rearrested and and brought before the court. The magistrate ruled that that, that he had um, uh, he'd failed the test. Not not before there was some some high farce because the the Scottish policeman who had given the test was cross-examined and a passage from the Lord's Prayer in Scottish Gaelic was put to him. <laughs> and he he said, Oh, that's a, not a very nice expression, because he didn't know he didn't know how to translate it either. <laughs> anyway. Kish was found guilty and and ordered uh, to be jailed for six months because this this all was done with a sort of a criminal law context. You were jailed for being in the country, and what 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 happened was you were jailed, but you were put on the, the next boat out of the country. But you were jailed, so Kish was jailed for six months, and he appealed to the High Court again. This time coming before four judges or uh, four or six judges, and the High Court by five judges, including Evatt, and the High Court by a majority of four to one ruled that Scottish Gaelic was not a European language. Oh there were so few people. There were so few people in in such obscure parts of Scotland. That it, it, it didn't qualify as a national language, or there was a lot of learning about what languages were. There was a dissenting judgment by by Stark, but it was held not to be a European language. I don't now, think that would have gone war, gone down well with the Scottish community. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, there was a series of there were a series of letters to the Herald by a whole lot of. The Reverend Mr. So and So, the <laughs> Chancellor of Sydney University, Mungo McCallum. Ah, uh, yes, who's I think got daughter or granddaughter who's who's currently in 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 Australia, but McCallum, and they all said, you know, what a set of dimwits you are! Don't you know that this and that? Um, Kish then launched contempt of court proceedings against them, which which came on which came on for hearing before Everett again, uh, and the Herald produced an abject apology and said we didn't mean to insult the High Court, and they were let off just being ordered to pay the costs. <laughs> and so so that was two or three failures. So. They had another go at Kish. Um, uh, they, uh, they applied another section of the Immigration Act. It came again before Evert. Evert tentatively ruled that the, the, the provision didn't apply to someone who had already arrived in the country. It was designed to deal with people before they got here. And the Commonwealth said, oh, that's terrible. Could you refer it to a full court? Evert referred it to a full court and adjourned it for six or eight weeks. And at that stage, Menzies, the Attorney-General, 
sued for peace. He said, look, <laughs> if we pay you your costs, if we give you some compensation, since you've been able to, to speak at every rally, the the anti-war movement wants you to speak at, are you ready to go home? And Kish said yes. <laughs> Kish said, yes, I'll take it. He wrote a book and uh, he left the country a hero. It, yeah, I mean, obviously a real dismal failure in terms of tr- A, trying to keep him out and B, trying to stop him having a- any undue influence as an undesirable. Uh, he, he probably, you, you wonder yeah. if they had just let him in and, and ignored him, had he, he probably wouldn't have generated that yeah. much interest at all. But <laughs> the perverse outcome was he was <laughs> given does, a huge profile. Show, it shows the danger to, to a... A government, any government, in prolonged litigation in an issue where public opinion can be assembled or or can change, and particularly if the government loses uh, in in the litigation. Uh, so th- th- this thing dragged on for about six months, and as you say, it, it was a it became a farce. We'll come to it, but fast forward to see how speedily the whole Djokovic thing was dealt with uh, in the courts. At least Australian courts, unlike American and other courts, will deal with these things on the spot. Yes. You know, pretty quickly, pretty quickly. But but in Kish's case, he was granted bail and the government failed in one case, had to start another. So the end result was he had five months, you know, rounding up, a lot of support. There were hundreds of thousands of people went to his rallies. Yeah, yeah. As I said, a, a pretty perverse outcome from the, the government's point of view. Um, he must have had an amazing legal team surrounding him and obviously his supporters helped him with, with the significant cost in assembling that team because they, they really were not giving up at every every stumbling block and every every time they they lost the case they they doubled down and tried again and tried a different tact as yeah. as did the government but uh yes yeah. it sort of it was in the end for Menzies and the the Lions government death by a thousand cuts and they just yeah. said go away we're sick of you <laughs> well he did he did have he did have Alfred Piddington who was who had been appointed to the high court a decade or so earlier but had, had not sat. He did have uh, a judge, in this case, Everett, who, who was very acute. He was at the height of his powers uh, and who, who, let's face it, had, had sympathies yes. um, for, for freedom of speech. When, when Menzies took up the cause in Parliament, he, he was attacked in Parliament for saying, look, you've been a great supporter of free speech, how can you justify taking this position? But every attorney general has to do his brief for the government <laughs> he's in, and so it was no criticism intended. But yeah. uh, it was deeply ironical that, uh, that that Menzies would be would be caught up in this deeply losing brief. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about Piddington and Everett. There was a interesting scene in the court, wasn't there, in the High Court, where where Everett suggests to Piddington's junior to change tact in terms of his legal argument, and there's a yes, there's a question yeah. over whether Everett was 
was perhaps acting appropriately there and and or perhaps yeah. engaging in a little bit of judicial activism in in you know on behalf of yeah. <laughs> Egon Kish. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you read that that situation? Yeah. Well, well, I, I I don't agree with the label judicial activism. It, it, it's become a a, a nasty word for a legal ruling that you happen not to like. If it's one that you like, it, it's, it's okay. But if it's if it's one you don't like, and it involves some development of the earlier law, judicial activism. But whatever did here was sort of some something different. Almost any judge will have had the experience of hearing a case where there's a litigant in person or a, a barrister who is making a meal of it. Mm. And you can see a whole lot of stupid points being taken, and, and but you might see a, a grain of a good one. It's generally okay in the course of the argument, in the presence of everybody else, to say something like, you know, have you thought about, is this what you're trying to say? <laughs> or, <laughs> look, there's a recent case that you might like to go away and have a look at, or that, that sort of thing. Now, some people... Obviously, there are limits to this, but if the judge has to decide the case according to the law, then he or she is entitled to draw aspects of the law to attention. Mm. But whatever did here was, uh, as I understand it, he, he contacted the junior counsel out of court and privately and, and said, look, the argument that you're mainly running, which is that the law is unconstitutional is probably not going to run because the High Court has already decided that point. Why don't you... Con- well, I don't know the exact words he used, but as, as reported in the history books, he said, look, you might be better off approaching the matter on the basis that the Minister has recited that the British government t- told him this and that and this and that, but there is no evidence of it. Mm-hmm. And so... Next day, that was the point that was taken, and Everett said, "Yes, I uphold that point." I mean, after after having given the government an opportunity, he said, "Look, if you want an adjournment to come up with this evidence, uh, please do." And at one stage in the litigation, Menzies swore an affidavit. I think it was Menzies or the minister; can't remember which. And the and the opposition said, "We want to cross-examine the minister on this." And the the, um, the government lawyer, under instructions, said, no, the minister doesn't want to be cross-examined. The affidavit was withdrawn, so there was no evidence uh, I see. to go on. I see. Yes. Yeah. So in the end, yes. quite a simple point, really. Um, yes. Most everybody would disapprove, uh, you know, a, a secret communication by a judge to one party mm. um, about litigation. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it has happened. So the issue was was calling the junior counsel into his office privately, away from scrutiny of the public in the in the court hearing, and uh, and having that conversation offline, as yeah. they say these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So so Keith, um, I just wanted to um, probe you a bit more about this dictation test so so you have the high farce of the Egon Kish case and you know Scottish Gaelic and was it a European language or not and he obviously didn't pass the Scottish Gaelic test nor did the police officer who was trying to give it to him 
but after all this, did the dictation test wasn't repealed until 1958. So despite the fact there was all this high farce around this, it was it was maintained as a part of Australian government immigration policy in order to to keep yeah, Australian yeah. migrants European. Uh, but but was there less and less respect after this for the dictation test? Did it fall out of favour or it was just accepted as a useful tool? Oh, no, there was less and less respect. Um, of, of course, there was also you know, some swing in the pendulum about the, the white Australia policy behind, you know, which was all, excuse me, designed to serve. Mm. It, it was a... Uh, a, a fig leaf, but a less embarrassing fig leaf than to try and prove that this particular person is Asiatic or uh, or didn't have a, a right to be in the country. But yes, it continued to be used very rarely on anyone but a Chinese or Indian or Fijian, you know, would be immigrant. But it, it was abolished in nineteen. 19- in 1958, as you said, and in my understanding, the white Australia policy was abolished in 1973. Mm, um, once and for all. So, mm. so how, how, I'm not quite clear in my recollection as to what they did in the dying days of the white Australian policy to give effect to it. Uh, it probably wasn't as efficiently run as it was in the days of the dictation test. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. I wanted to ask you for your reflections then on on Menzies during this this period of the Egon Kish case. I mean, you you said before he was he'd been a proponent of free speech prior to his um, appointment as Attorney General, Federal Attorney General. So it was a little bit curious that he was now a staunch advocate for stamping down on this gentleman from the, from Czechoslovakia coming and uh, wanting to, to talk about anti-fascism but he was doing his his um, doing his job as a attorney general in the Lions government it was obviously the Lions government's strong wish that, that Egon Kish not be in the country did it reflect badly on Menzies? Um, was it was it a, a major blow to him? It was obviously a, a great win for Everett in the we, we've had on this podcast before. Gideon Haig, who's written a biography of Everett, um, talking yeah. about the Everett v Menzies sort of nemesis relationship, which is an extraordinary one over many decades. Yeah. And there are so many parallels. They were so alike in so many ways in their upbringing, their mm. education, their interests and you know there's a, a counterfactual that that you know possibly ever could have been a member of Menzies Liberal Party if uh, life had turned out a bit differently but anyway he wasn't but yeah how does Menzies come out of this this um, saga well bad okay <laughs> oh well look, look if, if, if you if you look at it just in isolation not not his finest hour um, but it, it would have been at the time, it would have been seen as just one of a huge number of, of other issues in which he was engaged. There, were, there was the, the, the depression, the, the, the Lang. I think the, the fight over the Lang government was, was, was continuing, or maybe it was a little bit earlier. The lead up to the war, Menzies certainly tried to distance himself a bit 
from it. In one of his memoirs, he he sort of said, well, I inherited the problem and mm. it was the previous Minister for Immigration who had set the wheels in motion. Look, uh, I, don't, I don't think the establishment, including Menzies, sort of perceived this as as big a slap in the face as it was all happening. It happened over a period of, of months and in retrospect, it looks like a like a, a big a big disaster. I don't think we, we know enough about what Menzies did or didn't do or could have done. What is clear that that, that Ebert entirely properly, except for the one example we spoke about, applied r- rules of strict legal interpretation in favour of freedom mm. and developed administrative law uh, in ways that would take many decades later before any other judge applied administrative law with the sort of vigour that, that Ever did. It's interesting that nobody thought to run the point that the dictation test was really intended for non-Europeans. That would have been an interesting an interesting point. Anyway, your question is about is about Menzies. Yes, it was it was not his finest hour. He had a lot a lot uh, worse things happen to him later in his political career, and of course, so many many greater successes. Yes, uh, several several of them at, at Ebert's expense. Indeed, I think it shows it shows Menzies uh, as the pragmatist that he was. I think the fact that he he drew stumps on the issue shows a, a bit of judgment. I think sometimes governments do have to pull their horns in. But he, he would have been very distant from the litigation. We can, we can unpick the litigation in detail now because we have all the transcripts. Mm. But Menzies would have been sitting in Melbourne dealing with a whole lot of other issues uh, and, and people have just been putting papers under him to sign and do this. And, of course, what we'll never know is what the British government had on Kish, I guess, that was um, that, that the British Secret Service had decided not to share with the Australian people yeah. and, the, and the fact that the Australian government withdrew their affidavit saying they had evidence from the British yes. government and refused, and, of course, the minister refused to, to be questioned on that issue so it will cross-examined on that issue so so you know we will never know um it, it doesn't look like too much too much bad came from the EU and Kish visit anyway so whatever their whatever their concerns were were probably unfounded if it hasn't come Kish, to light Kish in 2022 was, I'd say it's not coming to light <laughs> Kish, Kish was pretty coy in his various affidavits about his involvement with communism. It came out frankly later in it, but but he didn't, you know, at a time when just to admit you're a communist was as good as a passport to trouble, mm. uh, he, he uh, telling, the, telling the whole truth. Right. Um, uh, but whether the British government really had had the goods on him or whether the British government, like the Lions government, just had the view, if you're a communist, we don't really want you agitating, mm. particularly in a pacifist context because these, these were the anti-war group rallies. That was the, that was the main ticket that they were running. It yes. was a pacifism and that wasn't that probably wasn't British or Australian policy mm. in the 30s. 
And I think we've got to remember the context of the time that that interwar period, and you know we were in the sort of four years, five years before the start of the Second World War. You know the the stakes were pretty high for governments, and uh, there was a there was a whole load of censorship and messaging that that was very carefully controlled by governments because of security concerns and and concerns about the you know public sentiment that that you know we're just not yeah. used to in in a a peaceful a peaceful time like we live in now for you know despite all the sort of <laughs> geopolitical tensions that surround us uh, these days but but look Australia has a track record of keeping out undesirable people for various reasons we've we've kept out people who might want to come to Australia and spout hate speech about various races or or religions. But our latest case, our latest high-profile immigration case, didn't involve someone who particularly hated anyone, (laughs) but he was considered pretty undesirable by the federal government and it looks like the state government as well. And that was a tennis player by the name of Novak Djokovic. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that case, which, which um, as we know, be- came before the, the, full, the full court of the federal court, didn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, of course, I, I see it just through the prism of what, what was decided there. And my, my particular interest is the similarities and comparisons between the Kish situation and, and, and the present situation. In both eras... It was ultimately a, a ministerial declaration that would be the, I was about to say, the passport out of the country. It, it would be the, the minister declared that he or she was was satisfied that you, you were a threat. That was the box that, if it was properly ticked, all that had all that had to happen. By the present time, with with Djokovic, that that. That law has been much refined and, and changed in response to you know, years of, of litigation over immigration detention in the federal court and the high court. In Kish's day, there wasn't anything like a visa that we that we have it. Uh, Kish would have shown his passport to the British consul in Paris, and who did just checked. Yes, it's it's a proper passport, mm. and and visa is based on I have seen. So it it wasn't then seen as a piece of paper. It was just, it was an act. So it had been just checked, and yes, everything seems in order. And in his day, the decision would be made at the time of entry, or or sometimes before entry, if the government could make the declaration, as they tried to do when Kish's ship was steaming into Perth. Of course, in the present time, uh, Mr Djokovic, like anybody else, had to get a visa before before he entered, and if that visa held up, it would be the passport through immigration uh, when he arrived. Uh, and, and so we know when he, when he was first... Um, uh, confronted, uh, there were proceedings, but they were they were based on the failure to give him a reasonable opportunity to meet whatever case was made, and so the the immigration officials' decision to cancel his visa was itself set aside mm. because 
of lack of procedural fairness. So um, Djokovic enters the country and the question is to the government, if we want to get him out, how do we get him out? Uh, and and uh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in those three days it took. Yes, it took a while, didn't it? <laughs> The affidavit. This is absolutely pure hypothesis, but what if Minister Hawke had said, well, you know, the lawyer, why do you want him out of the country? Oh, well, the opinion polls, no, no, you can't rely on opinion polls. <laughs> um, the Prime Minister rang me, no, you can't rely on the, was it, the uh, access he's, he's the, public health and good order, doesn't it? <laughs> no, we can't rely on that. So eventually... Eventually, I won't say they came up with, but eventually they they descended to to a ground which was the, the ministerial statement uh, that uh, his presence was inimical to good order in Australia, and that it was in the public interest to um, that he not remain, provided those two boxes were ticked to the satisfaction of the minister, mm. then. It, it, it's very, very hard for a court to second-guess that. It's not impossible, but uh, that's a, bit, a very a very high hurdle. Mm. Um, so unlike Kish, there weren't a series of delayed uh, hearings with, to use the comparison, Djokovic going off to play the Australian Open while the lawyers <laughs> argued it out in court. <laughs> Uh, uh, whereas Kish was granted bail repeatedly. Um, uh, I I don't know the details, but there wasn't an application and for all I know there wasn't a power to have let him out while the case was being... But anyway, it was resolved very, very quickly. Another interesting comparison is that in in Kish's case, it was what Kish was going to be saying that clearly what was upset the government and that he would be a rallying point for, for views that the, the government didn't want to be given any more oxygen than, than possible. Mm. In Mr Djokovic's case, uh, and the federal court made, made much of this, that the, the piece of the legislation said that if the presence of the person would be inimical to good order in Australia. But the key word was the the presence. So what he said was irrelevant. There still had to be some thought process that by being there, he was either attracting attention or conveying implicit messages that would allow the the anti-vaxxers to spread their, their, their false message and would undermine the the attempt to to beat the the pandemic, uh, which the majority of Australians are 110 percent behind. Of course, what um, what I find curious though, Keith, is getting vaccinated in Australia is not a legal requirement for everyone. Um, there are certain professions whereby it's a condition of you working in that area that you must be vaccinated. So the federal government, which 
doesn't mandate vaccinations. I don't think it's all the state governments who are choosing what professions have a mandate for a sta- for a vaccination. So the federal government is saying that we we think this person who we we believe is a sort of a clarion call for the anti-vax movement. We think the presence of this person in our country, even though we don't mandate everyone to get a vaccination, so you're actually free to to not be vaccinated if you don't want to. Obviously, it's going to limit your ability to do various things these days. But we think that that is not going to be good for the good order and public order of of Australia and therefore he, he should be booted out. He shouldn't be allowed in Australia. It's a very, very, very high bar, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> so so, you, well, so, this, is, so Djokovic yeah. hasn't done anything illegal in not being vaccinated in terms of, you know, there are Australians who are not vaccinated because they just don't yeah, want to be. Yeah. And yet we, we're just saying, well, the government thinks it's a nice idea to be vaccinated and it would be good for everyone and therefore someone who's not vaccinated in our society is going to set a bad example and therefore, well, because he's not an Australian, he has to leave. <laughs> well, the, the, the parliament has... has chosen to arm the minister with this power mm. uh, to, stip- to stipulate that this particular power isn't subject to natural justice. No. Um, uh, and uh, I'm not, not here to support or attack the, the policy behind that, but the decision was made, um, namely that we would rather the executive government call this shot. Obviously, they they are responsible to Parliament uh, and through Parliament to the people. In this case, of course, what Minister Hawke was doing clearly had, you know, a lot of support from, from the Australian yes. people. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. But we, we lawyers or civil libertarians may say, well, hmm, um, one argument I've heard is, well, if this applies to... Djokovic, it could apply to Greta Thunberg um, because you've got someone whose views are controversial. That's all you need yeah. to say. They, yeah. they might be good controversial, bad controversial. Yes, we've had far, you know, far-right Holocaust deniers, but uh, I think all, all I can say is that's the call that Parliament has made in uh, – and the, the word presence is um, – if, if, if their presence is there. Ironically, if Djokovic had been the, the other Czech... There was, there was another tennis player, there wasn't was, there? Who, yes, a female Czech. Now, I don't know Czech, whether, I I don't know was she Czech? Yeah. What's wrong with these I Czech? So. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know whether she was... They're good tennis players. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether she was an anti-vaxxer, but let's assume that there was a, a low-profile anti-vaxxer who, who, who came in. Um, it would be, assuming the minister wanted to use the same power, I think it would be much harder to, to, to establish to anyone's satisfaction that it was a genuine use of that power. So it, it's this combination of, of Djokovic's profile um, and the extreme stringency of this law and the low bar of judicial review. Now, now one one rather wicked thought I've been having thinking about this is whether in any way the the use of this power in this context could be said to infringe the implied 
principle of freedom of speech mm. that was established in the... The Australian Capital Television case. ACTV, yes. yeah, yeah. That is a, a constitutional implication which limits federal lawmaking power. And, and the, 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 the question, the, the hypothetical question, the interesting question, the armchair... <laughs> <laughs> jurisprudence question is what if Djokovic had said um, yes I am going to speak my views and I am going to wear I am going to wear a t-shirt saying vaccination is bad and freedom is good and whatever yeah so it, it would have brought into the open the issues that you were raising namely, in reality, there are freedom of speech issues lying behind the, the thing. They are a bit more suppressed with Djokovic than they were with Kish. Nobody argued the point, and as I say, because the trigger was that his presence alone uh, was enough, but, but what was inimical about his presence? Was it the message he was conveying, or was it the the message that people of undesirable views would attribute to him. So if you have a cause and you, and you see, well, he's the lightning rod, I'm going to, to say yes and, you know, it, it, it's not just Mr So-and-so who has these views. There's even that nice bloke, Novak Djokovic, holds these views and therefore, you know, give greater credence to them. But anyway, I'm not saying... There was no um, free speech issue intruded. There's a little bit of a hint in one passage in the federal court where they say, thank heavens we don't have to, <laughs> to go there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But as you say, the immigration minister's power to, to prevent someone entering is pretty broad and it, there were very few grounds for Djokovic's lawyers to, to really appeal against the immigration Minister's decision on the basis of uh, Djokovic's yeah. presence in Australia being um, a threat to the public health and good order of of Australia. So it, it, there were limitations, but um, it is very interesting that the freedom to express a view on vaccination hasn't, you know, in in the current climate, because I think people are so so keen to get out of this pandemic. That concern yeah. around free speech has been really pushed to the side, as I think it would be in times of war too, where yeah. where there are genuine yes. security concerns in society. I mean, we've got a sort of a health security concern now. You see free speech really falling down the rung of priorities in people's lives. So the general public's view was not to be concerned about Djokovic's free speech or, or the, the free speech of people yeah. who might have supported him. No, look, just go away. We want to live our lives. Get get over COVID. Please just <laughs> let's... And, and let's, let's face it, Djokovic's people, Djokovic did not run that argument. He did not he, run that he, argument, he, no. His argument was that I'm not here to speak. No. Uh, and I'm not diseased and so why throw me out? I was talking to a Canadian friend this morning about the apparently some injunction has been granted against all those truck convoys that are blocking the roads who are hooting their horns all the time. 
And so uh, a, a judge has granted injunction against hooting the horn, uh, and and they have raised a free speech argument. Is a horn speech? Bill. Is a horn speech though? <laughs> that, that was what the judge said. He said, "I don't, I don't think tooting your horn is an exercise of free speech." But doesn't come out but, of your you know, voice box. Seen, <laughs> but we've all seen bumper stickers. You know, if, if you're in favour of me, hoot your horn. So, <laughs> uh, but. Anyway, all of these things, you know, in a sense, I think we should be grateful that our Australian system gives speedy justice. It, yes. it meant that there was a decision, and in this case uh, an appellate decision, granted in, in a matter of days and everybody knuckled down. I've been involved uh, as a judge in Fiji where cases, you know, the Constitution looks wonderful, but cases take years and years and years to get there and my perception of the American situation is it's a little bit the same, whereas Australia has always been, if, if you say you have a right of liberty, we'll see you in court tomorrow. And, mm. and that's what happened mm. with Kish and with Djokovic. And that's a, a testament to the um, success of our legal system in Australia that we the cogs of, of justice do move very, very swiftly um, when it comes to people's personal liberty. So yeah, yeah, no, that's something yeah. to be extremely grateful for. Thank you so much, Keith, for talking to me on the Afternoon Light podcast about Egon Kish and Menzies and Evert and, of course, Novak Djokovic and free speech and, and the power of the immigration minister that continues to this very day. Um, it's been fascinating and um, I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to us at the Robert Menzies Institute. Thank you for having me. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.